Hello and welcome to a special episode of The Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by the Athletics' Liam Parham to preview Sunday's World Cup final between France and Argentina. Liam, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me on again. It's, uh, it's great to be back. Liam, it's great to have you back. I mean, yeah, we're speaking about a World Cup final on Sunday. It doesn't feel like one. I have to say I'm nearly dying with a cold here. Indeed, you have four, <laughs> possibly the starting French eleven, dying with a cold as well ahead of Sunday's game. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm, I'm based in the UK in London. It's, uh, it's been very cold here this week as well. So trying to sort of wrap your brains around that. And then the, uh, the onrushing Premier League sort of returning as well. Um, and speaking to some of our writers um, who work on the EFL and they're obviously back um, going again. So our, our Norwich writer was in Swansea last weekend and it just, um, it's all a big, big chaotic mess of football right now. I mean, how is your World Cup been as a whole? It's been really great. This is the first time I've ever worked on a major tournament like this. Um, so it's a really... You know, I was fortunate that I was part of my job. I was required to go through and preview all the teams and, and look at all the groups. So I got to spend a sort of three months researching these teams, the you know the players, watching their games back, um, delving into everything. So I, I don't think I'd ever got into a major tournament like this feeling so well prepared. So it was great that, um, you know, because growing up World Cups, I think at least for me, were um, a window to see players from around the world that you just never heard of before. Um, it's like a discovery tool. But this time it was, oh, no, I know about most of these players, most of these um, nations and their managers, how they want to play. Um, and now I can appreciate that and seeing, oh, I, I saw them do this in qualifying or in the Cup for America at the Euros. And um, you notice those trends and those patterns. And for me, that, that's that been really good fun. I think as Nino Nahi would argue otherwise. However, I mean, Liam, you did a fantastic piece at the beginning of the tournament speaking about tactical diversity in light of this World Cup. And of course, there's that infamous article on The Athletic earlier on this week with Juan Malilo. Jorge Valdano actually penned one a few weeks ago, if I'm not mistaken, mm. on The Guardian about all countries playing a uniform style. I mean, Juan Malilo, I mean, he calls it the end of football. He says football is gone now for the fans. It's all about <laughs> the games. Everyone's playing one form of football. I mean, are either correct in their statements? It depends how you look at it, right? And that's a really overly abstract response that I'd probably hate to, to hear from someone else. But... um. Yes and no, to a degree. I think football works in cycles. Um, it's now very different in terms of, if I speak to my dad, for instance, who um, grew up throughout sort of the 70s and the 80s, and he'll tell me how World Cups are the only time that, for someone in England, that you'd see certain players that play in South America or play elsewhere, that you know, you've got these glimpses of players every four years or occasionally whenever you'd see them on TV. But now I can go on to Scout and I can see every game of a player in Brazil's second or third tier. Um, you know, the, the accessibility is a great thing because for scouting and recruitment and for... Um, football becoming more elite and more technical, more talented. It's it's really catalyzed that. But I guess at the same time, you maybe lose how magical things can be um, in that regard. And that I think it's, things cross over a lot more. So, you know, players are moving to different countries now to play. It doesn't feel like individual countries are as tied or wedded to uh, maybe a stereotypical style of play that, that we used to see. I think a great example is is England. Um, it's a team I've got, you know, emotional attachment to. But from sort of having my coaching hat on, I've been really, really delighted with the the style evolution that they've gone. Um, they've gone through. There was a great um, Opta analyst tweeted out sort of a, um, a comparison of them from the 1966 World Cup all the way through to now and how their style has evolved from just being really a long ball direct team, not having much possession to now being a really organised. And I think only Spain, who as everyone's seen at this tournament, are, you know, just like passing the ball, maybe a bit too much at times. They're the only team that's really more expansive than England now. So I suppose if you're going to view it from an individualistic perspective and wanting more spontaneity, um, Perhaps so in, in that regard. Um, but I think it's a more entertaining um, spectacle now. I, I enjoy the Jeopardy. I think 
games feel like they're getting closer. I think we've seen that this tournament. It's the first time we've had three Asian teams, I believe, in the knockouts. The farthest, obviously, an African team has gone. Um, no one ended the group stage with nine points. This has felt like a genuinely competitive World Cup, which has probably got other repercussions because when it is in the season, player fatigue and stuff. But um, I think the competitivity has been really great fun to watch. You know what, I'd have to echo that too. And I think we've become so accustomed to it and everyone's been so welded through viewing the game through the prism of that positional play lens over the past decade or so since Guardiola's Barcelona and obviously teams before brought it back to popularity. I mean, you've just seen the success of Morocco in this tournament. I think Rodri even offered a backhand comment against Morocco saying that they didn't even come out to play. So it's that sort of, it's those sort of comments that for me that are at odds with what international football is, which is on its day, it's really a game of roulette. I mean, one roll of the dice, so to speak. With that being said, I mean, I've seen a colleague of yours at The Athletic, Michael Cox, on the Athletics Tactics podcast, just after the group stage, he had an interesting stat here about dribbling being down somewhat of mm. 33%. I mean, we see as a wider trend as a whole throughout the tournament, Liam, that there's really no space between the nine teams more now than ever, very, very compact and shuffling the ball out wide. It makes that individual quality like a Lionel Messi, Kylian Mbappe, all the more eye-catching. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say so. There was a great quote from Jesse Marsh, I think, just prior to the tournament. He spoke about, um, I think it was Leeds' final game and they were asking him who he wanted to win. Um, and he was saying how they're two different sports almost to compare the domestic game to the international game. Um, and, and as you mentioned about Michael Cox, he made good points about about we definitely feel like international football lags behind the domestic game. We're not maybe sure how far, but I think at this tournament, a big reason why the, the dribbling is down, of course, is how defensive most teams are being. There's not that space to play. Teams are being compact. And the hardest way is, as you and I both know from a coaching perspective, if you're playing up against a mid-block and your winger starts trying to dribble every time, we're probably on the sideline going, like, don't, don't do that because the chances of you turning over the ball, of you losing it, you know, are, are very high. So, um, I think it's important that when we we take these statistics, we keep them in you know, the context of the tournament that they're in. Um, and I've been looking at, I was looking at substitutes and goals they've scored um, and assists they've made this tournament as obviously it's the first World Cup and the men's side that we've had with um, five substitutes. We've, of course, seen that at Continental, um, major tournaments, but the first, first on the world stage. And um, it's comparable really to 2014 um, in terms of goals scored. I think that broke the record. There were 32 goals by subs. Obviously, Gertz's in the final was um, the, the most memorable of those. And that's really comparable in terms of the climate. When I was seeing the coaches speaking about um, obviously playing out there in Brazil and it being so hot. And again, as we mentioned about players being ill and uh, the air conditioning in Qatar, that, you know, there's, they're really hard to compare and look between because they're so closely um, wedded and, and knitted to the teams that are playing there, first and foremost, but where they're being played and the dynamics of it all. So I think they're great little time capsules of football World Cups. I think they're really, really fantastic. And it, it's then really exciting. And John Miller did a great piece on this um, for The Athletic where he, he analysed uh, football and basically he looked at the cycle. So we often will say, oh, it worked in cycles, but actually bracketing, this was this in this 10-year period and trying to work out where we are now. I think the cycles are getting shorter and constantly moving, uh, maybe even a little bit quicker. But it's it's trying to work out where they are um, is, is really interesting. It is. And... You know, just looking back at the tournament as a whole, I mean, it's been very interesting, of course, with the five subs. You see the increased additional ball and play time. You see, I mean, there's been so much more. Um, yeah, the increased ball and play time. You've seen how lenient referees have been. I think there's only been, what, one red card the whole tournament? Uh, there might have been two. The second one was for Vonsan Abubakar. Um, 
yes. as a as a second yellow card and a Hennessy. But I don't think we've seen from memory a straight red given to an outfielder yet. And the only straight red we've seen given, obviously, to when Hennessy was given as a yellow card and VAR recommended a review. So, um, yeah, as you say, we, we saw that send a bit into chaos in the, the Netherlands-Argentina game. Um, in particular, obviously, there were comments about Bakaya Saka and the protection he was or wasn't afforded um, in, in England's game against France. But it's, uh, yeah, again, it's been interesting. And, and I appreciate the referees making efforts to evolve the game. Um, they spoke before, didn't they, the tournament about uh, additional time. I, I don't really conceptually actually massively dislike some of Wenger's legislation in terms of suggestions about, uh, you know, the 60-minute the clocks with the, um, the basketball-style stop clock when it goes out of play. I think... Football, fundamentally, we have a problem with being really resistant to change. Like, we don't even really listen to what it is someone's suggesting. It's generally anything new, straight off the bat, no. Then maybe we give it some time and go, actually, this isn't this isn't terrible. And um, a lot of us now are saying that, you know, I think quite a lot of people, not everyone, have moved past the idea that VAR is inherently bad and are saying now we maybe need to tweak it, but we don't, you know, we don't necessarily hate all these things. Um, and you look at other sports and you think football probably is a bit behind in its... Uh, you know, how accepting it is for certain things. When you look at, I think cricket's a great example in the UK for how they've brought stuff in. Um, tennis too is a, is another good example. So, you know, there's there's always ways you can be improving a game. And as laws change, of course, they then have that knock-on effect of, um, you know, implicating how the game's played. So we saw the impact of the goal kick law and that change to receive inside the box. And now five, six years later, pretty much every Premier League side wants to build their way from the back. Um, and that wasn't a thing sort of 10 years ago. So, you know, who knows that, you implement possibly these these Bengal rules in five, ten years' time, um, football game could, could look very different. And I guess it's trying to predict that and then trying to develop the next set of players who are now the academy players to get them ready. And it's uh, it takes a lot of brain power, I think, to, to try and get something uh, even remotely close to that. You know what, even subjectively, Liam, I mean, the chaos of VAR intertwined with the leniency of the referees has added to the spectacle of it all. And I can't believe for one second that FIFA are even threatening to expand the World Cup and change the group stage format, which they will do from 2026 onwards. Mm -hmm. But again, I mean, we'll have to have that conversation for another day. I mean, focusing back on the game this Sunday, I mean, let's see how both will line up. I mean, let's explore the routes to the final, even Liam more apparently. Mm -hmm. And in spite of injuries pre-tournament to four, if not five, of the first 11, they've had quite a comfortable route passage to the final, aside from that England game. Yeah, it was really looking like as likely for France to sort of combust and self-destruct and implode um, prior to this tournament. I, I was very wary of them. Um, they've been poor in the Nations League, admittedly with injuries. They, they played a back three. They played quite a nice shape. Actually, I was enjoying watching them play with the, the back three and sort of Griezmann in this number 10 role um, in behind sort of Karim Benzema um, and Mbappe as well. And obviously Deschamps has then reverted to the back four that we were accustomed to them playing um, in 2018. I think he's improved it. I actually did a piece that's out on the site if people would like to read it, sort of comparing their tactics between the years. I think even if they don't win it, I think they're an excellent case study for how you can adjust and evolve your your tactics over time. Um, they've got a lot of the same core. Obviously, if you look at their fullback pairing, it was uh, Benjamin Pavard um, and Lucas Hernandez. Obviously, his brother Teo has came in a lot more attacking and, and their lopsidedness, I think, has been really helpful with it in terms of exploiting teams out wide. But then the evolution that is, I think, been more forced than sort of chosen uh, for Deschamps. Obviously, he's lost his pivot in terms of Kante and Pogba and being injured, but has brought in Schumeni, Rabio. And I think the, the inclusion of Griezmann now in this like number eight deeper role has been fantastic. I think one, technically and tactically, he's phenomenal. He's really good technically. I think he's played something like 70 or games in a row for France, which is mental that he's not missed a game for years. But 
I guess from like a leadership standpoint and, and a team, you know, being glued together on a pitch, if, if you've got two players um, who are young, one number one and two quite internationally inexperienced, having that leadership around them um, and a player who knows how to do these things on the international stage is, is phenomenal. So I think it's great because you've got two teams in the final who have both lost the game in the group stage um, and how often we sort of place an, uh, an emphasis or an onus on being perfect and not losing. It's definitely something England have done and I've backed them doing it, going, this is a good thing, you know, clean sheets, being hard to beat. But it's, um, I think people massively overestimate how good you've got to be or what it takes to, to win a tournament in terms of success and that it, it's it's really not comparable, I think, to the domestic game in a lot of ways. I was having discussions with um, certain people about sort of uh, analysing Croatia and people saying, oh, well, they've, they've just got lucky, but I've said they, they've reached semi-finals at, um, you know, two World Cups in a row now, or the final in 2018. They've won their Nations League group. I've said that when, once we start trying to analyse teams about sustainability, it doesn't work because you're not playing a sustainable game here. Being a good tournament team isn't, and it's never been about that. And predictive metrics are one of the best things to come into football, in my opinion, in recent years. But I said we have to be very conscious now as to how we go about evaluating what's good, what's bad, um, and, and especially when we're viewing the very most elite teams uh, at international level. I think we have to take a word for uh, Didier Deschamps here as well, because he's a guy that's not universally popular within French football, despite being like in French football in folklore for being that World Cup winning captain in 98 and obviously winning it as coach in 2018. And I mean, if he goes down and wins on Sunday, I mean, he'll forever go down the echelons of football in history. And we look at what he's had to contend with, even quite recently, mm -hmm. Benzema, Valbuena scandal, Paul Pogba, witch doctor situation, the list mm -hmm. goes on and on. But it just goes to show football really at the end of the day, Liam, despite me speaking about data here and whatever, it really is a game of opinions. And I mean, look at France. I mean, they haven't really talked the game to the opponents in this tournament. They've been quite passive, solid in defence. They picked and choose their moments. And the man behind all of this here is Antoine Griezmann, who we just spoke about, the reinvention of Antoine Griezmann. No player in this tournament has created more chances. I mean, could you bring us up to speed with how Deschamps is using him and how different that is to mm. how he's utilised at Aleti under Chola Simone. Yeah, there's a great quote uh, from the 2018 semi-final against Belgium um, when he said that after the game, he said it felt like a, an Atletico Madrid match that he felt at home in it, um, which I think is a good sort of barometer of you know, where their style was. They're, they're great because I think they adopt what I'd call a super strength approach, which is quite simply they're trying to get their best players doing the things that they're best at, um, which is probably more of a player-centred approach of I'm going to fit the players into a system rather than, uh, sorry, I want to make a system fit the players that I've got rather than making players fit a system. Um, so a team like Spain, I think, are probably more of a system-based team where regardless of who the personnel are, they're going to want to play in a certain way. You could maybe argue that for England at times, I think they're probably somewhere um, in between. And it's it's an interesting dynamic in terms of how we view possession because obviously Real Madrid have been serial um, Champions League winners um, and, and big te uh, a team for big games really um, in, in recent years in particular. When we look at the four um, semi-finalists for, for this World Cup, none of them are particularly high-possession teams. That doesn't mean they're all sort of counter-attack based, but teams that aren't really too fussed about controlling the game with possession. And I think we'd reached a point maybe four, five, six years ago where possession was seen probably as the most important thing after just scoring goals over maybe shots, over other sort of key um, attacking things and working out now where that sort of stands for a lot of people is as you mentioned about the, the Rodri comments, oh, they, they didn't choose to come out and play. Well, that's because the Spanish identity, as far as I'm aware and concerned, for the longest time has been about winning a game with possession. For some teams, they just care about winning the game um, and how much you then sort of 
prioritize style or the way in which you do something. I know Van Hal came under a lot of stick for uh, the Dutch and going away from the 4-3-3. I think it can be dangerous and problematic. And this is just my opinion. If that offends anyone, I, I do apologize. But I, I don't see a value um, in trying to make players in 2022 play the same way as in the 1980s or the 1990s because the game has evolved and changed. You can look at any statistic that will tell you that. In fact, you can go back and watch any game. They don't look the same. Uh, the space is different. Um, the type of athlete that you've got is different. And that's no, that's not me slagging off uh, football in the 90s from what I've seen and what I've heard and been told. Some of the best players ever, uh, some of the most inventive players, I think we're in, we're in that time period. And I guess that comes back to uh, the comments we were speaking about um, in terms of football becoming more uh, robotic now. Um, I think it is, but I think it's also become more of a team game about making a good functioning group of players rather than having a game where individuals can take it um, you know, pick up the ball and dribble 50, 60 yards. Um, I just don't think that's possible anymore. And whether people like it or not, that's probably where the game has got to. And that's what we need to accept. And speaking about teams adapting to players at their disposal, you look at Argentina, France competitors on Sunday. I mean, Messi's performances for sure have led them to a day with destiny. And I'd argue anyone that goes back and looks at, looks at Messi's performances as a whole, since the Saudi Arabia game, you look at his performances against Mexico, against Poland, against Australia, against Netherlands, Croatia. Arguably, Liam, if you were to make a montage tip of Messi throughout those five games, they would compete with any section of Lionel Messi's career today. He's been absolutely phenomenal, even by his standards. Hmm. He's fantastic to watch. Um I think the biggest compliment I could have for Argentina, particularly in the Copa America, and um, now is that they'd built a system which was less reliant on Messi than what they'd been before. I'd say the same for Brazil with Neymar. And it's that really weird dynamic and balance of, I've got this outstanding world-class player, but how do I get the best out of them without just becoming fully reliant on him? Um, I've been really, really impressed with Scaloni and his tactical flexibility. Their game management hasn't been as good as it was. Um, they were really at the Copa America. I think they were winning at half-time in either six or seven of their seven games there, including the final. They would score early. They wouldn't quite shut up shot, but at times they'd sit off teams. At times they'd play keep ball. Um, they were an excellent team at going one up, managing a game and scoring a second or a third and really killing off opponents. And we forget because they lost their record against Saudi Arabia. They came into this 36 games unbeaten. They've still only lost one game in about 40-odd and that includes a World Cup qualifying campaign, a Copa America, and now a World Cup. Um, and this is Scaloni, who obviously wasn't hugely popular when he got the job when he got the job in the first place. Um, and that's been largely down to, I think, now what we're seeing um, is what he's been able to do with Lionel Messi and have him in this sort of free role. It's obviously quite comparable to Mbappe, that both don't do a lot of defending, and both have a forward next and that does a lot more of the defending. And uh, I think Messi in possession is maybe slightly more licensed Mbappe's I think still more of a transitional player we forget again Mbappe was playing on the right four years ago now he's come across to the left another sort of tweet from from Deschamps um, Messi I saw a great um, graphic earlier on I can't remember who posted it but they looked at his average touch location and I think the four or five World Cups that he's played at and his average touch location at every tournament is still pretty much the same in that you know sort of right half space um, uh, attacking zone where yeah, he did we've all seen him that, that great clip against um, Josco Guardiola where he gets 1v1 and even the best defenders in the world right now look like they can keep him out for a period of time. Um, but but his, his simplicity, I think, is, is what makes him so elegant and beautiful to watch. He he looks kind of tackleable. I don't really know if that's a word, but he looks like he can be tackled, which I think is how he lures defenders in. He's not like Cristiano Ronaldo or other players where he's going to get the ball and be um, elaborate with it and stylish and do lots of skills and tricks. He, he's deceptive. He uses his shoulders well. He's obviously quite small. He's got a low centre of gravity. 
He's a really efficient and really effective mover. Um, he draws players in because he doesn't take... Oh, so he takes a lot of touches, so he keeps them all close to him. Um, players then bite, they nibble, they vacate space. Uh, and just how quickly his brain uh, must process things and see pitches is phenomenally quick because suddenly, you know, he looks... He goes from a, a situation of, of no danger whatsoever and five seconds later, he's he's playing a, you know, a cutback for um, someone to score a tap-in or he's on the run, as we saw against Netherlands and, and seeing passing angles, which quite frankly don't exist when you look at them on the reverse angle. You go, I, I've got no idea how you've seen that and how you've played it. So, um, yeah, he's, he's been a joy to watch. Yeah, La Scalonetta, the real thing, which I believe what they call it in Argentina. What does it mean? Mm. Rock and roll football, they say in Buenos Aires. Mm. Well, Lionel Scaloni, I mean, we're speaking about Messi, obviously all the limelight on him, but what about Scaloni? I mean, youngest manager in the tournament. You've spoken there, Liam, briefly. You've touched upon it. He's shown great tactical diversity, switching between a back mm. four, back five, sometimes even in games. And he hasn't shirked the big changes. I mean, he's thrown in guys like Enzo Fernandez. He's thrown in guys like Julian Alvarez. I mean, Julian Alvarez, again, Lionel Messi, the irony. He spent his whole career playing with the likes of Gonzalo Higuain, Martin Palermo, mm. even at the start. Sergio Conaguero, his best mate. And most recently, Latore Martinez. But it seems to me, the 22-year-old kid, Julian Alvarez, is the perfect foil Messi's been waiting for his, throughout his whole career, really. Yeah, I mean, he's probably not entirely removed from Aguero in terms of a play style. Quite a slight forward who is incredibly athletic, dynamic, lots of forward running, um, makes space for Messi. I think we can do a lot of his defensive work without the ball. Martinez is probably quite similar in that regard. And uh, I think it's the, the simple thing of having complementary players. Uh, you could say the same about France now. This year in particular, you're looking at Mbappé for left, someone likes to come inside, and he's got Teo Hernandez, who's going to really push forward um, and create space for him and, and have that really good partnership that side. So, um, I think, again, balance is the key thing here, that these teams might not have, if you were to list them, the um, the 11 best players at the tournament, but having a best 11 is a very, very different thing. I think it was the same reason why Van Gaal switched system with the Dutch and went to, went to a back three, so he could get in um, more of his better central players. And I, I think scone has been fantastic, as you mentioned. He's, he's switched between uh, systems and games, the back five, of course, against the Dutch. And I think he's used the subs largely well. They've not always... Um, paid off in terms of how it's affected the game. Obviously, they they threw away a lead against the Dutch and they lost from one up against uh, Saudi Arabia. So their game management could do with a, a slight tweak, but I would trust the people that this is an approach that has worked for a large period of time. Um, they've been really, really good. And it's, yeah, it's it's kind of mental in the sense that he's probably as a manager, a bit comparable to Kylian Mbappe, that there's not really going to be this discussion with Mbappe that we've got for the likes of Messi and Ronaldo because he won the World Cup as a teenager. Um, if Scaloni comes in now and, and has won a Copa America and won a World Cup um, this side on in his career he doesn't really need to do anything else does he to, in terms of sort of trying to prove himself so I still just find it fascinating how these things can really loom over a player um, so late into their career we saw how devastated Ronaldo was when you know Portugal got knocked out that you could see the emotion on his face that he knew that was probably his last World Cup and quite possibly last major tournament um, and, and you know the, the psychology then probably shouldn't be underestimated that as maybe as robotic as football gets, these are still human beings. Um, and a lot of these people are football fans or people that have, well, they have played football their whole life that have massive emotional attachments to this. this. It might be their job, but some they don't enjoy it. But for some that are so passionate, this this will mean everything. This is literally the pinnacle um, of their career. I mean, that that's a very pertinent topic to bring up. And it, it is important to note that we do sit on the precipice of greatness on Sunday. We're looking for the little man's arguably the best in history is the mm. very first World Cup 
But it's been enough said about that. What would happen if Kylian Mbappe was to take home second World Cup at the age of 23? I mean, Liam, there's a suggestion there from some quarters that that could give him the nod in terms of gold status in the future. Yeah, it's. Um, I find it to be a difficult conversation because everyone's got an opinion on the problem is you can't really be right or wrong with it. Um, I think, yeah, whoever people want to consider as their greatest for, for whatever reason, I um, I, I think those arguments come quite redundant in my opinion. I just I just don't, you know, people just end up um, not really having a discussion, just shouting their opinions at each other. So, yeah, I, I always find the Ballon d'Or and stuff to be interesting. And then in that regard that, you know, the trophies make a player against an individual then playing in a team game. Um, fundamentally, it's really hard to analyse, which is probably why I go, I'm not going to bother because you get into a rabbit hole very quickly. Um, but to have won it and to have had the impact across both tournaments that he's had, Already, he's he's been phenomenally good, and I, he's one of the most exciting players to watch for me because, sort of, in the same mould as an Iron Robin type winger. And I feel like you only really get this with with wingers and wide players. Is he's never hugely unpredictable. He's just purely unstoppable. People can't match him for his speed, uh, for his footwork. You saw in the build up to um, the second goal that France scored, um, in the win in the in the semi final where he gets it and he just weaves in and out of players, and it's fantastic that. His, uh, I think, six of his seven goal involvements at this tournament, um, at least prior to the semi-final, um, had been past the hour mark in a game. That th- this is a player who's great because a, whole, a game will go on for the, the entire thing. He he won't necessarily touch the ball or be hugely involved. In, and Mauricio Pochettino covered this in in his column for the Athletic that he just comes alive in moments. I think he encapsulates what international football is all about. In that it's not about being sustainably good. You don't play a lot of football. It's not about dominating for ninety minutes. It's someone who comes alive and it just can be breathtaking to watch. Um, a lot of the time we know what he's going to do and the fact that he's still been able to do it is like, wow, you are really, really good. And tactically, Liam, I mean, where should we be casting an eye ahead of Sunday? I think the the right side uh, for Argentina is interesting and obviously that being France's left with Messi liking the space that uh, Mbappe massively uh, vacates is, is really, really interesting. Um, how they set up wide will be fascinating whether he uses Di Maria in that sort of position obviously he scored the winner in the Copa America final um, I think could be um, you know possibly a really really good outlet there as a, a good player to run behind a good finisher someone that can cut inside and obviously defensively if he's a left footer playing on the right that puts him in a good position if he is to track back and help out marking Mbappe Mbappe cutting in would be on his strong side so that would be a good thing there but um, I think it's great because as I mentioned about these not being high possession teams I think both average around 50% of the ball um, there is scope for one of the teams that they want to to say, yeah, we'll we'll go and really control the game. Or it could become very transitional. Um, we know the side keeping the ball too well. It will probably be a KG first half, but I think it's worth stressing that these are the best two first half teams at the tournament in terms of leading at half time. Um, teams that can start well and have started well. Um, and then I just think in central midfield, it's going to be fantastic because in Rodrigo de Paul, you've got a fantastic runner. Alexis McAllister, I've been privileged to watch his evolution at Brighton evolving now into what in Argentina they'd call a number five sort of a defensive role but can play as a 10 um, and Enzo Fernandez as we already touched on you know being one of the I don't know maybe breakout star is harsh but really making a name for himself um, on this really really big stage Griezmann dropping into the, the deeper number 8 role and obviously having Schumeni uh, possibly Rabio Camavinga uh, in one of those defensive midfield roles that it's going to be two young midfields that are really probably look in balance but function really really well um, and there's going to be a great legacy left behind for one of these these two teams in that Either France will go back to back, obviously, becoming the third team ever to do that, or Argentina are going to have a Copa America and a World Cup under Scaloni um, and have a ridiculous record. So 
and that's going to be a huge legacy for, for one of those two sides. Yeah, and Enzo, what a story. I think the guy only made his pro debut last time I checked, July 2021, with River Plate. So his growth has been absolutely phenomenal. Mm. What Argentina do with that midfield, Liam, is going to intrigue me on Sunday because what they've done thus mm. far is with those four, they've played a flat four, they've played with a box, two sixes, two tens, they've played with a diamond. So how they set up against France is anyone's belief, is a beggar's belief really on Sunday, but mm. something which we will all be glued to. Now, Liam, for the most important part of the podcast. <laughs> Team of the tournament. What formation are you right, going I've, with? I've written this down on my, my phone because I wanted to make sure I didn't miss anyone out because I've seen a few people have done these on social media and uh, they're always good when people post them because no one really cares to say where they agree. It's just, oh my God, you've left this player out. So I'm intrigued to see if you think I've missed anyone. Um, but I'll go through it. I've gone, gone for a 4 one because I think that's what a lot of the, the top sides are playing. Um, I've gone for Levakovic in goal. Um, obviously he's been a hero for Croatia in, in shootouts um, he made something like nine saves against Brazil um, really really phenomenal um, Akraf Hakimi I've gone for it right back he's I one thing I pinpointed actually before this tournament was I thought Morocco had ex, ex, excellent exciting fullbacks who were dynamic and uh, forward running and I think they had a really good second half on that right side against France with Hakimi um, and obviously the, the other players joining in I don't think it's been a great tournament for central defenders, which is probably down to, I think, how defensive a lot of teams have been. It's been hard to sort of penetrate and play through. I think Harry Maguire's had a really good tournament, especially with the, the criticism that he got. But I've picked John Stones over him. I just think his line breaking the whole tournament um, was, was really key for England. Um, he's really, really talented. He's, he's done it now at you know, three major tournaments. He's been really good. Um, and I've put Roman Seiss next to him. Could have gone for Nea Fegerd, but um, I thought Sice and his leadership. I was really sad to see him come off uh, in in the semi final. Um, clearly, must must have hurt to you know lead a team all that way. Um, again, not a hugely stylish defender, but really, really balanced for Morocco. Um, I believe he's their captain as well. Um, you know, he's just just been fantastic and a team that have been so good defensively. Um, really so well rounded. I thought Morocco were fascinating because with him and Eger, they're two left footed centre backs, which I think has gone under the radar a bit because people normally hate that. There's no this weird conception like, oh, you, you can't play football with that. Um, and they've, they've been really good fun with those two. Um, I've touched on him, but Teo Hernandez, I put on the left of the back four. I think he's been the best left back at the tournament. Obviously, he's, he's only playing because his brother Lucas um, ruptured his, I think he ruptured his ACL um, in, in the opening game against Australia. And, and it's you know been fantastic for France going forward. In front of them, I've gone for uh, Adeline Unahi. Um, just... I mean, there's the Luis Enrique seal of approval, which I think is is good enough in itself. Um, a player who's I wasn't aware of before this tournament, and I had spent a lot of time researching. Um, and I, I don't say it disrespectfully, but um, I think this is one of the few examples now you get of players coming onto the world stage and, and lighting it up. And I put Antoine Griezmann next to him. Um, I know he's maybe not quite as deep as a defensive midfielder, but I'm doing the thing that like BBC Sport and everyone and Sky Sports do when they put out their team is it doesn't this team wouldn't function. It's just this is my eleven best players more than a, um, a best eleven. Um, I don't think the the three behind the number nine will take it on by surprise. I've got Messi on the right, Mbappe on the left, and I've gone for Cody Gakpo on the number ten. Um, I know the Netherlands haven't quite gone as far as other teams, but Gakpo in the groups was for me one of the best players. Um, a huge source of Dutch creativity. Um, I think he was the best part about seeing their sort of change system to a back three was him playing in behind those two strikers. Uh, and I think Olivier Giroud had a great tournament four years ago. Um, I think he's been just as good now in terms of his hold-up play. And obviously now you start adding goals to your game as well. And um, people are only going to rate you even higher. Brad, we have seven. Seven in common. Mm. I've gone through the four. four. Well, 
We've gone for a 4 3 3, Lim. Lavakovic mm -hmm. in goals. Hakimi and Theo. Two full backs. Two centre backs mm -hmm. are different. I have Gardiel. Oh. Gardiel and oh, Autumn. okay. Yeah. Automendi for me has been a huge surprise. I think the way Argentina play, they required their back four to be so, so aggressive. And, you know, for me, yeah. watching these last six, seven games, I mean, he's been absolutely phenomenal. His leadership as well. I mean, I haven't seen him lose at 50 50. I mean, he's so strong in 1v1s. There was a few headers in extra time against Veghorst and Lee on the twin pairs of the Dutch that he was winning. He's been yeah. a warrior and he's epitomized that Argentinian yeah. mentality on the pitch. Midfield. I've gone for three. I've gone with Luka Modric. I've gone with Sofiane Amrabat and Antoine Gris. Mm. Again, very close. It was a bit sickening to leave out Enzo Fernandez and, of course, Unai. Mm. And then up front, I think it speaks for itself. Messi off the right and Bappe off the left and Olivier Giroud up front. Giroud, mm. again, I mean, what a tournament he's had at his age. Mm. Again, as a Chelsea yeah. fan, you could argue that we've wrote, that we've read him off too early, but Again, you have to just admire Deschamps to stick with his men. And although there is rumours, there is talks about Benzema coming back into the squad ahead of Sunday, I don't see it happening for one second because that big man, Olivier Giroud, I would not put a past in time mm. the, in the second World Cup win for himself in France on Sunday. Mm. Moving on, young player of the tournament. I mean, do you consider Gradio as, as uh, young enough to... Um, received that I, I think as well in our here I think he's only 23 22, 22 and younger yeah, yeah. so, so uh, he would okay. qualify now he's 22 yeah would he then I, I I can't put him in the team of the tournament I think as probably the youngest player and not not giving young young player yeah for sure I'd have Gerard Viol just by privy of the fact that he's in the starting 11 Unahi <laughs> close second and Jude Bellingham Jude Bellingham would have to be there surely as well yeah yeah I, I felt bad leaving Bellingham out of the team um it's, he's weird because he just doesn't feel young in the best way possible. He's like, I, I can't remember. I think one of his assistant coaches said he's the, he's the oldest 19 year old or 18 year old you'll, you'll ever see that he's, you know, so experienced. He's the player picking up Harry Kane after that penalty miss. Um, yeah, I, I can't remember what he did. I think it was the assist for uh, Henderson's goal um, in the in the round of 16 against Senegal. And when he did it in that round beyond, I was like, that's, that's vintage Belling. And I was like, can, can you be vintage? Can you do vintage things that. Yeah, when you're literally a teenager, that's how long he's been doing this stuff for. He's phenomenally good. I think with a view to you calling him the oldest, or the most mature 19-year-old you've ever seen, I think Wayne Rooney, he did a podcast mm. recently with the Everton Fans TV about uh, playing against him when Derby were playing Birmingham when he was 16 and he man-marked him. Didn't he put one in on Rooney in the mm. first 30 seconds? Didn't help him up. So again, that look, I love watching Bellingham play. I think he's going to bring England to new heights over the next few tournaments. And for him to be 19 years of age, strutting the stuff in the world stage is absolutely ridiculous. Player of the tournament, I think there can only be two contenders. Who are you going for? I I, I think it can't be decided until the final. That's because it's it's mm -hmm. Messi and Mbappe who I think are, are fighting it out for. Um, and you know, if if either gets the winner in in that. That might well see the Ballon d'Or, or it would definitely seal the the power tournament, the the Golden Ball. Um, yeah, for sure. No, no pressure. I'm ask you for the winner no. of the tournament. This is bearing in mind that you predicted correctly a one 0 Australia win in this tournament with a Mitchell Drew header. So, I did my proudest moment. I did actually predict Argentina to win it before the tournament started, largely based on the fact they were so many games unbeaten. They'd done it in the Copa America. I thought if any team was well placed enough. Um, obviously, 
that looked like quite a laughable suggestion when they went two and down to Saudi Arabia. Um, but I, I, if anyone's going to not lose the game to France like that or keep France um, out in terms of defence, I would think it would be Argentina. Um, whether it goes the distance, I'm not sure. Um, and I, it feels quite written, right, for Lionel Messi to uh, score the winner or set up the winner. Um, and I, I was looking at some of the models earlier on, I think 538, a very good sort of uh, advanced data company in, in the States. Um, I think they split the game as 53-47, I think, in favour of Argentina. Um, but, you know, when these advanced models that are considered are a shed load of statistics um, can't quite split it, uh, it's really tough to call, but I'm, I went with Argentina at the start. I'm going to stick with them now and hopefully they, they bring that. Yeah, I have Argentina down to win. And I think, isn't there something fitting or romantic about Messi, the Messiah, leading his disciples to the promised land the week before yeah. Christmas in the middle of the desert? <laughs> you know what, though, for everyone listening, I mean, enjoy the game on Sunday because we really and truly are on the cusp of greatness. The mm. France are pull off back-to-back World Cups, Liam. I don't know if we'll see that feat ever again in our lifetimes, but wouldn't put it past him. Prospering again in 26, nice. that they have Lionel Messi yeah. going out on his World Cup bow. Can he finish with mm. that of medal, La Tricera, for the Argentinians? Liam, I'm really looking forward to the game on Sunday. Thank you so much for coming on. Me too. Sparing half an hour or so to preach. Thanks for having me. Enjoy it.